Let's, uh, let's turn to Ezra again, uh, if you can open your Bibles at Ezra 1. Uh, Ezra is one of these books where uh, we really do need to have a, a little bit of a historical uh, context into which to put it, uh, not least because we'll get caught out by the fact that Ezra himself doesn't appear until chapter 7, and that's a peculiar thing, isn't it? Uh, uh, the first over half the book, uh, Ezra is not there at all. It's simply an account of how the people uh, were brought to the point where they were able to return to Jerusalem and build a temple. So uh, there is uh, somewhat boring stuff connected with dates that we have to do before we actually get into the enjoyment of this letter. Here's the first date, which is uh, useful. 605 B.C., was when the first of the Jews were taken into captivity. Uh, now, the Babylonians were the, the big power at the time, and when they sought to bring dominion over one of their uh, defeated nations, they would take people from that country and they would transport them to another country, sometimes Babylon, sometimes somewhere else. But the idea was to, to mix up their subjugated people, so at the back of resistance was broken. First one was 605, and in that exile, Daniel was taken with some of the nobility. Then in 586, uh, 586 uh, was the, the conclusion of a siege of Jerusalem. This was the great black year for Israel, when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem, uh, the Zion of God's people, uh, the temple, the place where God met with his people, destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar, and a large number of people taken from Judah into captivity in Babylon. But then the, the, the empires come and go, and the Babylonian Empire went when Cyrus, the Persian, came into Jerusalem in 539 BC. It said that he diverted the course of the river that went under the wall of Babylon and his army came in unopposed and they occupied Babylon. Cyrus became uh, the new uh, world leader. And then five, the next year we have what we have contained in this chapter, Cyrus's proclamation that the Jewish people were free if they wished to to go back to their own land and to restore the temple. And two years later, the temple work actually began. You see that in Ezra 3, verse 8. But uh, there was opposition stirred up, and for a 10-year period, the temple uh, construction work wasn't going on. And you have some of the other prophets like Haggai and Zechariah coming and encouraging the people who had stopped this rebuilding work to roll up their sleeves to get stuck in, uh, not to get absorbed in their secular employment, but to remember that God's work comes first. And so the temple work uh, was resumed, and in 516, 516 BC, the temple was completed. And then, not till then, 458 BC, Ezra arrives on the scene. Ezra comes back, temple's been completed at this point, and he comes and uh, we have the reading of the law. Uh, the people 
had done what God told them, but there are all of these inconsistencies in their living, and Ezra comes with a word from God leading to uh, a repentance on behalf of the people. Okay. A lot of dates, and the main one that we're concerned about just now is this 538 BC when Ezra, uh, when sorry, Cyrus gives his proclamation that the people can return. Uh, this is somewhat like the tractor I have in my croft. <laughs> no, this is a, uh, an old uh, rusting tractor. A friend of mine in Sky told me recently that he had a, a tractor like, like this lying in a corner of, of a field covered with nettles, rusting badly, and obviously of no use to anyone and probably going to disintegrate within a year or two. And he got in touch with someone who was in the way of restoring <laughs> these things and had it uh, transported over to his place. And this other fellow, who was a, a mechanic, spent a long time, I think he spent over a year uh, doing it, sanding it down, uh, buying in new parts. It was largely replaced. Uh, it was repainted until it looked something uh, like this, a restored and beautiful Ferguson tractor. Uh, pride and joy. Well, Ezra is a restoration project. It's about how God uh, takes something which is hopeless, something which uh, is uh, destined for uh, a bad end and brings into uh, his own keeping and restores it. Uh, Ezra is a book that tells us how God is able to restore communities. Because it's essentially about the restoration of the people of God. But it's also about how God restores individuals. Uh, how God restores believers. Uh, there are times as Christians when we grow cold and we wander away from God. And we need to be restored. And God is the God of restoration. And when we've not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're not yet Christians in the true sense of that word, we don't realize it. But what we actually need is to be restored into God's original purpose for us. We were made in the image of God originally. And sin has spoiled that image. And God's Holy Spirit is able through his word, through the gospel, to restore us again. To where God wants us. It's what we call conversion. It's what we call the new birth. It's what we call uh, coming to trust in Jesus as our saviour. And we're going to be dealing with this great theme of restoration in Ezra. Which is one of the, uh, the books of the, the exile. It's a restoration book. It goes along with Nehemiah. Uh, the two were probably one book. Were almost certainly one book at one time. And they tell the story of the restoring of the temple and then the restoring of the walls around Jerusalem. And then you've got other books like Haggai and Zechariah, which were connected with this time uh, when the prophets came under God to stir up the work of restoration. And then you've got the last book of the Bible, Malachi, uh, where Malachi is sent again to confront the people of God uh, with their sin and to lead them to repentance. So we're in the land of Persia 
We're in the 6th century BC. The Jews are in exile. There have been Jewish prisoners, as we saw, living there since 605, pardon me, BC with Daniel. The king that brought them there was King Nebuchadnezzar, who was an energetic but cruel king. And his policy was to break the resolve of people by transporting them someplace else. And so it came to be that a large number of God's people found themselves in exile in Babylon. And the reason for them being there was idolatry. They had turned from the living God and they had worshipped false gods. It's remarkable uh, if you read through the story of uh, the Old Testament kings, how the people, uh, even after good kings who brought them back to God, reverted to worshipping false gods. Now, how is that relevant to us? We don't have totem poles. We don't have uh, gods made of bronze or wood in Coatbridge. But all of us can be guilty of idolatry. In fact, idolatry is, is the great sin. Because idolatry is simply giving something else, the place in our hearts that belongs only to God. Think about that. If we have a greater devotion to something else, whether that's our family or our sport or a pleasure of some kind, our career, some good thing, but we put it in God's place, then the Bible says that we are guilty of idolatry and we need to be restored to God. Uh, There's a story told uh, regarding the minister in a very famous church in Philadelphia, a 10th Presbyterian church. Uh, we worship there in our time there. And the minister three back now, or four back, was uh, a famous preacher by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. And Barnhouse was one day speaking to a young lady after the service. And the lady was telling him that uh, she was following Christ but she wanted to put her Christian commitment, as it were, on the back burner until she had succeeded in her career. She wanted to go and pursue a stage career in New York. And she said to Barnabas, after I've made it in the theatre, then I'll follow Christ completely. Well, they were standing beside a post box and Barnabas at this point took a key out of his pocket and scratched a mark on the, the metal post box. And he said, that is what God will let you do. God will let you scratch the surface of success. He'll let you get close enough to the top to know what it is. But he'll never let you have it because he will never let one of his children have anything rather than himself. And years later, he met up with this young woman again, and she confessed that that had in fact been her life story. She had enjoyed a measure of success. In fact, at one point, her face had been on the cover of a national magazine, but she never quite made it. And she said, I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I've closed my eyes and seen you scratching 
on that post box with your key. God let me scratch the edges. But he gave me nothing in place of himself. God warned his own people that they would have a stern lesson in exile. They would learn what it was to be away from God and hunger for him. He said, among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both day and night, never sure of your life. Even reading these words is a solemn thing, isn't it? To think of how dreadful it is uh, to know that there is a God and that we were made for a purpose, that we will find our fulfillment in God, but be unwilling to follow him. A terrible place to be. We've lost our way. As a girl in Philadelphia said, God let me scratch the edges, but he gave me nothing in place of himself. Well, God uh, sent his people into exile as part of his fatherly discipline of the people. The experience would purge them of idolatry. They would come back and they would have many failings. But they would not be setting up Asherah poles any longer back home. The story of Ezra is one of God restoring his people. He takes them home so that they can have the worship of God at the center of their lives. That's why the rebuilding of the temple is at the heart of the story. Now the temple in itself uh, has always been uh, symbolic of uh, the, the meeting place between God and man. And it's a reminder to us that restoration means that we have uh, a relationship with God restored. That being restored is all about having a living relationship with God. Not about stones and mortar, about buildings or church structures, but a living relationship restored with the Holy God through trusting in Jesus Christ. And that that work is a work that only God can do. You cannot restore yourself. And many people begin by trying to do that. They begin by trying to to renovate their lives uh, by giving themselves a list of rules that they'll try to keep in the hope that they'll, they'll be better people, they'll be more Christian in their attitudes and in their lifestyle. Uh, I'm reading at the moment um, a biography of the, the famous uh, Russian writer Tolstoy, and it's, it's amazing. He was such a, a big character in every way, a very flawed character, and at the early part of his life uh, he realised that Uh, His life was chaotic. Uh, He was so ill-disciplined. He was a womanizer. Uh, He was a gambler. Uh, He did so many things that were wrong. And he tried to to restore himself. And he would uh, make a long list of rules for himself. Some of them were uh, realistic. And some of them were totally unachievable. And he ended up in frustration. 
Because you can't restore yourself. You cannot renew yourself to the work that God must do. So, the first thing that we see in this chapter as we begin to study the chapter itself is that it reminds us of the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God. In verse 3 we hear the words of Verse 2, rather, the words of a great king. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. And then we go on to read about his edict that they may return. The word of a great king. Cyrus, the Persian, a great king. And he can give a proclamation like this. But behind the word of Cyrus, there's the word of the king of kings. The word of God. And before Cyrus was born... God had prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that God would indeed move the heart of Cyrus to make the proclamation. Jeremiah 25 verse 12, but when the 70 years, that's the 70 years of captivity are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. Now, 70 years, God said, in Jeremiah, and that may be an approximate figure, but if you go back to the dates that we had up on the, on the screen, 605, the first deportation, 538, uh, the publication of, of Cyrus's edict, 66 years uh, have passed Somebody has commented that, that it, will, it would not be the first or the last time when God in his mercy shortened the time of judgment. Cyrus, who came into Babylon, had a policy that was very different from the, the Babylonian kings. Uh, the Babylonian kings transported people and, and uh, the Persians had a much more benevolent attitude. They were willing to allow people to return uh, to their homeland. Uh, Some people think that Cyrus was quite happy to let the Jews go back because he had designs on Egypt. And so to have a people who were positive towards the Persians between himself and Egypt was quite a shrewd move. And so he published uh, this edict Now, let's see if we can get. There we are. Uh, this looks like a, a piece of sweet corn or a bit of uh, caramelized sweet corn. This, this is uh, what's called the, the, the Cyrus cylinder. And if you go to the British Museum in London, uh, you can see this. And on this uh, are some of the some of the inscriptions on this relate uh, to Cyrus's policy of allowing people to return to their homeland. Uh, some, one of the, the lines on it uh, reads, I returned the images of the gods who had resided there, that's the gods who had resided in Babylon, to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned to them their dwellings. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because you, you have these, these fragments from museums, from archaeology, confirming uh, the testimony 
of God's holy word. But the point is this. Here was a man, a king, a great emperor who had a particular policy. And the policy involved allowing people to return. But Cyrus's policy was driven by the, the, the divine will of God. Isaiah 45 uh, speaks about uh, Cyrus being God's anointed, being God's shepherd. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. God is going to use a pagan king who will not be converted, who will remain a pagan king, but he will do God's purposes. Uh, Isaiah speaks here of the treasures of darkness that will be given to this man Cyrus. And Cyrus actually was the one who conquered Anatolia in modern Turkey and defeated Croesus, the king of Lydia, and plundered huge storehouses of gold. All of these things fulfilled. He remained a pagan. He remained somebody that wanted to acknowledge lots of gods, but God uses him. Uh, Isaiah continues, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. The word of the Lord. Hundreds of years before the fulfillment in Cyrus the Persian. That's Isaiah Jeremiah speaks of the plans that God has for his people. Uh, He says, Thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is the God, uh, the God that we proclaim in the gospel. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. uh, The God who has ordained whatever comes to pass. The God who knows the the end from the beginning. uh, The God whose word prophesies the events of history. And the God who declares here for his people that he has plans for them. Plans to, to prosper them. And to to bless them. Plans to uh, do them good and not to harm them. Now these promises, these promises to prosper and bless a people, they are not vague promises, they're not woolly promises. 
They're not promises uh, that just float out there. They are promises that are given to those who are in the company of the people of God. So there's a question, isn't there? Are you in that number? Do the promises belong to you? Are you one of God's people because you have trusted in Jesus Christ, his son? Because if you are, then you have a title to that promise that God has great plans for you. Plans to prosper and not to harm, to give hope (coughs) and a future. God's mighty word. Secondly, we're going to look at God's great deliverer. God's anointed deliverer. As we read the book of Esther, we find from time to time that there are echoes of other parts of the Bible. And one of the parts of the Bible that's echoed in the first chapter is the story of the Exodus. The story of how God took uh, his people when they were once captive in another country, in Egypt, and took them out of there back to the promised land, to Canaan. And one of the things that happened before they left Egypt was that God put such a fear of himself upon the Egyptians that they gave gold and silver and jewelry to the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. And so when we read that Cyrus commanded the neighbors of the Jews uh, in verse 4 to assist them with gold and with silver, with goods and with livestock, we should be reminded there should be bells ringing in our biblical memory that this is what happened back in the Exodus. And it's as though we're being reminded by the Lord that Here's another exodus happening. Now, back in the exodus, Moses was the great deliverer. And here, amazingly, Cyrus is the great deliverer. Yes, it's his political purpose. It seems to serve his interests to let the people go. But behind all this, there's the mighty hand of God who has moved his heart to do this. And so, he is God's agent. God's anointed, God's shepherd to do his work. In fact, Cyrus is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember when uh, he was conversing with Moses and Elijah on the Mount, (coughs) we're told that he was talking with them about the exodus he was about to bring about in Jerusalem. Jesus was saying, in other words, when I go to Jerusalem and die on the cross, I'm going to bring about a deliverance. When Jesus died, he bore the penalty of sin that keeps us from being free. Our sin will keep us in chains. We will end up in a lost eternity separated from all that is good. But by trusting in Christ and receiving his finished work on our behalf, we know freedom. 
we take part in this exodus. We're brought out of bondage and into liberty. God has acted in Jesus to bring about our exodus. And just as God acted back there in Persia at exactly the right time, allowing the 70 years for Babylon to elapse and then raising up Cyrus to be his anointed, to be his deliverer. So we're told that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. The God who shapes history by his word, the God who sends an anointed deliverer in Cyrus, is the God who also moves hearts. Now, you see that in the passage twice, uh, we're told that God is moving someone's heart. Uh, in verse 1, uh, it's the heart of the king. God, the Lord, moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. It was because God was at work in Cyrus' heart that Cyrus gave this proclamation that the people were to go free. But God also moved the people to go back to Israel. Verse 5, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now what you need to remember is this, that the situation was actually not that bad for many of them in Babylon or in the Persian Empire as it came to be. Uh, we're told that they were allowed to settle down there. Uh, they were able to build their houses and so for some, it was maybe not the perfect life, but it wasn't a bad life. There were worse rulers in history than Cyrus. And so, for many of them, it would have been quite easy to have simply stayed on there. Uh, to have carried on with all that was familiar. And not to have undergone this huge upheaval in going back to Jerusalem. Why would you want to make this thousand mile trip? Why would you want to uh, leave behind those, those business connections, uh, those people that you had come to know, those customs that you had adopted? Because God moved your heart. God moved the hearts of these heads of families. He gave them a hankering after Zion. He gave them a desire to return home. To know his presence, symbolized still by the temple. Only God could do that. Only God could disturb their complacency and stir them up so that they began to load these donkeys and gather the furniture together and make the preparations needed for the return to Jerusalem. Now that's true for me and it's true for you also. Nothing's going to happen spiritually unless God moves our hearts. We've got hearts of stone. Uh, we're unwilling to believe the gospel. Can't understand the gospel. We're resistant to having another king rule over us. And then God the Holy Spirit comes and melts our hearts and moves us. 
and gives us a desire to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not involved. It doesn't mean that uh, it's nothing that we have nothing to do with it. Of course it does. Just as the people had to, to get ready, make the preparations, and pack the boxes and so on, so uh, we uh, are to believe and obey. But God must move our hearts. Summer before I began high school, the Lord God moved my heart, moved me from a place where I was simply acknowledging uh, that the, the Bible is true, acknowledging that, that God is God. I believed all of the Bible. But there came that moment when God moved my heart so that I confessed my need and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive me, to cleanse me. He moved my heart to begin the first steps of discipleship. I was thinking this morning, I was telling some of you about that uh, event after the meal that some of us had in St Andrews when a, a, a girl who was serving us, uh, who had been listening in to someone's testimony, was moved to ask what was going on. Was moved to ask if she could come along uh, to church and hear more. It's wonderful to know that God is moving in someone's heart. Is God drawing you, moving your heart? If God is moving in your heart, then uh, He also places an obligation on you to respond uh, to that. Paul says to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work. Respond with belief. Lastly, the God who, uh, God whose word is mighty, the God who raises up the deliverer for us, the God who moves our hearts to believe. It's the God who reassures us, reassures us by giving us signs that, that comfort us. These last verses in Ezra are not the most memorable verses in the Bible. They're not the most scintillating verses. Uh, unless you find uh, a, a crockery inventory, uh, something that quickens your pulse, you're not going to be particularly excited by these but they have significance in the scheme of things. We're told, we're told uh, that Sheshbazar, the governor, took all of these gold and silver vessels back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Why on earth would we want to know that? Well, because they, when Jews had been defeated and Jerusalem fell, Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the temple back to his palace and they were a sign for him and for his people that our God's better than their God. You can imagine how the media of the day would run with that. You remember when we were in Daniel how uh, Belshazzar had taken the vessels that had been brought from Jerusalem and put them on display 
at the drunken banquet that he held. And we know what he was saying. We are the people. This is the sign that our gods have got the victory over Jehovah. Now God is reminding his people that he is the sovereign God. And the vessels that once had been taken from Jerusalem are being taken back. This is a visible, a powerful, a tangible sign of the grace of God. Isn't God good? In that he deals with us in this kind of way. Aren't there times in our lives when we have so badly needed it that God has given us a comforting token, if you like, of his favor towards us? I don't know what these would be in your own circumstances. But for all of us who are Christ, there's a time when we gather around the Lord's table and it is bread and wine that become the signs that reassure us. Signs of God's grace. Sign that God loves us and gave his son for us. So God's people are on a journey. They're on a journey. And we're on a journey not to Jerusalem, but we're on a journey to glory. The great question that faces all of us is, are you on that journey? Are you on that journey? Has God moved your heart? Take every encouragement that you are given, that he is indeed moving your heart, and lay hold of His grace in Jesus with both hands. God has a plan of restoration, a glorious plan, a plan that you can trust, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, to give hope and a future. May God bless to us all his wonderful gospel. Amen.